Well, dear friends, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Isaiah chapter 51, verse 9, through chapter 52, verse 12. And if you have a Bible with you, please open it there and follow along, because it's a very long text, and it'll make more sense if you can see what's happening along the way. Well, in this season of Advent, I opted sort of suddenly to move us out of Matthew for the next two weeks when we'll be focusing instead our attention on a very famous section of Scripture in Isaiah chapters 51 to 53. So today's the first part of that, and then next week we carry on. And the passage before us this afternoon is long. It's more than a whole chapter, but the point is that the whole thing leads us up to the gospel of God. So, to deal with the end here at the beginning, what is the gospel? What is the good news? that the prophet Isaiah wrote about to a people who were facing oppression in the 6th or 7th century B.C., or perhaps, as many scholars think, he was writing to future exiles in Babylon. What is that good news that Isaiah wrote about that remains the good news for all God's people for all time? Well, it's three words in chapter 52, verse 7, almost to the end of the passage. Three words. The very end of verse 7 of chapter 52. Your God reigns. That's the good news, dear friends. The good news. That's the gospel. And it hasn't changed. Your God reigns. Your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and the covenant, of course, the God who earlier in the book of Isaiah promises comfort to his people, the God who Isaiah says will send his servant to deliver his people from darkness, the God who we know, in fact, himself comes as that servant focus of our attention every year at Christmas time, the God who comes ultimately to suffer and die and rise from the dead, who now sits enthroned and especially in focus during Advent, the God who's coming again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness finally eternally reigns and suffering is no more. I mean, the gospel in Isaiah's day isn't different from the gospel in our day. Even if we can fill in more of the picture than Isaiah could quite know about, the good news remains, your God reigns. Only the critical thing to observe, I think, in Isaiah chapters 51 and 52 is that the good news of that anticipated reign of God comes 
during the night, amidst darkness and suffering and exile. There's a movement in this text from the beginning of it where God's people are calling on him to wake up, to deliver them, to rescue them. There's a movement here from the people calling God to wake up to God saying through his prophet to his people in response, wake yourself. <laughs> Awake and watch and wait, God says to them, because your salvation is coming. That movement, in fact, takes us through what I think are three units in our passage, each of them beginning with the similar cry, awake, awake. So those three sections, the first begins right away in chapter 51, verse 9, where the passage starts. And then again, we see it in chapter 51, verse 17. And then again, and finally, we see it in chapter 52, verse 1. So right there in verse 9 of chapter 51, the people in exile say to God, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Their question is, why has God not acted to deliver us as he has done in the past? Then in verse 17 of chapter 51, the tables are turned. The prophet then says to the people, wake yourself. Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Because it's now Zion's oppressors who will suffer. And then finally, in verse 1 of chapter 52, comes the announcement the third time, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The messenger races to the mountain to publish peace, to bring the gospel of happiness, to publish salvation, to say that your God reigns after all. So that the good news, the announcement of the reign of God over all things and over all circumstances comes here even as his people are in the midst of suffering and hardship. Which means that the good news can be for us in the midst of our own sin and suffering and hardship and perhaps time of exile from the purposes of God. The gospel is for those who know they sit in sin and darkness, who know they need the comfort and the salvation of God as in the days of old, who like Israel in Isaiah's prophecy are in a place of crying out to the Lord for deliverance because they need it, saying, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. That's the start of the first section in verse 9 of chapter 51, and it continues. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you 
who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? There are times when you and I are right to pray, or the people of God through time and around the world are right to pray to the Lord, awake. <laughs> Not because the Lord's actually asleep, but because God has designed that such waiting for him is part of our experience of him. That when, from our perspective, the Lord seems slow to act on behalf of his people, to boldly pray for God to so act does not offend him. The people of God rightly cry out for his help in times of despair. And when we do ask God to act, we should be looking backwards. We should be looking back to the past as we discern the pattern of God's power at work to save and deliver his people over time. Awake as in days of old, they cry. They know they need the sort of power that Yahweh has exhibited in the past. Isaiah is thinking here, of course, of the exodus. The exodus from Egyptian bondage. It is the paradigmatic moment of salvation in the past. And this is evident from verse 10, with the references there in verse 10 of Isaiah 51 to the drying up of the sea and how it was then made a way for the redeemed to pass over. What's maybe puzzling is the way that Isaiah describes it in the end of verse 9, where he speaks of God cutting Rahab in pieces and piercing the dragon, and we wonder, what, what's that about? Well, it's not as mysterious as it seems. The Hebrew word rahav refers to an arrogant and haughty attitude reflected in proud behavior. And we know that Isaiah means to refer to Egypt here because the same word is used explicitly in reference to Egypt back in Isaiah 30, verse 7. You don't need to turn there, just trust me on it. It's Egypt in view. As for this dragon, different thoughts on it, but it seems that Isaiah here is using Canaanite imagery by imagery of a sea monster, of an evil force of watery chaos that was slain in combat by the gods. As one commentator explains it, the myth of the struggle of the gods with the sea monster was known in one form or another all over the ancient Near East. Isaiah is here utilizing this acquaintance among the people for his own purposes. Just as a poet might today allude to the Iliad or the Odyssey using imagery familiar to his hearers, but that is hardly part of their belief system, so Isaiah uses the imagery of the well-known stories of creation to make his point. That it wasn't Baal or Marduk or Asher or any Egyptian god who had any claim to being the creator, it was the Lord alone. And the point is that the power, the power was on display when Yahweh, that power was on display when Yahweh delivered his people through the Red Sea. Controlling the waters themselves, the Exodus proved that the Lord could make a way for his people when no way seemed possible. 
And now he can do it again, making a new road for his people to go on. Verse 11 of Isaiah 51, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Notice how Isaiah here evokes the historical exodus to portray future hope. The return of the people to Zion. Their lament will end when Yahweh acts. And, of course, indeed the exile would end. And yet, the full realization of what Isaiah portrays here remains the future hope for God's people. The experience of everlasting joy when sorrow and sighing shall flee away remains our great hope. Some translations read, gladness and joy will overtake them. I rather like that. That God will allow no place in his coming kingdom for even a trace of our present sorrows. Note that it is this promise of such a future that is the anchor, is to be the anchor of his people's faith and the source of their comfort in the midst of suffering. Verse 12 of Isaiah 51, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker? Who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? The people need to consider who they think they are. What right do they have to fear transitory human beings when Yahweh comforts them through his promises of deliverance. What sense does that make? The people's problem is not that Yahweh needs to awaken. Their trouble is that their fear of the present circumstances has led to their theological amnesia and emotional terror. They let the threats of men rule their hearts. Now, what crisis exactly the text has in view here is a difficult question. Some scholars think the context here is perhaps the concluding phases of the Assyrian conquest, when the Assyrian leader Sennacherib was opposing Jerusalem with a large army, so that would put it 880-some B.C. or something. But I, other opinion is, and I tend to conclude this way, that the context here is actually looking ahead to, in Isaiah's day, looking ahead to the future Babylonian exile, that this section of Isaiah is addressed to the people of Judah who will be exiled. But whatever the historical setting, these are words with power that are meant to shape the, the people of Israel's and our own thoughts and fill our hearts and minds who are you that you are afraid of man who dies 
and have forgotten the Lord, your maker. What distress are you facing, brothers and sisters? What fears do you have? What burdens are you carrying? God is not asleep. He hears the cry of our hearts. He welcomes it. He is ultimately the answer we need. I am he who comforts you. He is able to breathe life into despairing people with the strong reminder of his promises of deliverance and salvation. To fear the oppressor ultimately is to deny God. The psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Or in other words, your God reigns. True hope and courage come from the promises of God. Because in the knowledge that God is watching over us, we can face anything. I, I am he who comforts you. This is what God most wants us, wants his people to grasp. Verse 15 of our text, Isaiah 51, I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Uh, one commentator says of that verse, quote, Yahweh's purposes for the heavens and earth are inextricably bound to his purposes for Zion and her people. One exists with and for the other. Hurting citizens of Zion can be sure that while the world has a purpose, they also have a purpose. They have a future, and that future includes deliverance and life in a new heavens and earth. You and I do not need to deny the world and all the questions that suffering raises. We do not need to pretend that everything is okay when everything is far from okay. But those things must not become our central focus. Because if they do, they will overwhelm us. Rather, our focus must be on the Lord our God, because he who establishes the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth declares, you are my people. 
Which brings us to the second section of this text in verse 17, because the tables are now turned, and we'll go much faster now. Verse 17, wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bull, the cup of staggering. Isaiah sees what has happened. He sees the people of God lying in a drunken stupor, so to speak. Jerusalem and her children have indeed drunk, but it's from Yahweh's cup of wrath. Destruction and hunger have been their experience. The Lord has used the oppressor to judge his people. Verse 19 says, These two things have happened to you, devastation and destruction, famine and sword. And no human defense or comfort could help. Verse 19 asks, who will console you? Who will comfort you? Judah had not understood that it was God, not the Assyrians or Babylonians or any human power. That it was God alone they had to reckon with. But that's also why there is good news here inside the bad. Because the God who put that cup to their lips will also take it away. And when he does, he will use it to bring judgment on their enemies. Verse 22, Isaiah 51, verse 22, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over. A new day of grace has dawned. The Lord has fulfilled his disciplinary purpose. Yahweh's punishment passes from Jerusalem and Judah to Babylon, as I read it, but maybe it's Assyria. The nation that had been Yahweh's instrument of judgment. Wake up to what God has done, Isaiah is saying. His salvation is ready and waiting. His judgment is on the horizon of history. Awake. Which brings us to the third section of our text, that begins in chapter 52, verse 1. As the attempts to awaken Jerusalem to the reality of Yahweh's comfort resume, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Notice that they really were the captive daughter. Their sufferings were real. But now they must arise. Their oppressors will leave. Perhaps they will not feel very differently yet. But they must act in hope, in confidence, in the knowledge of the coming salvation of God. The truth that you and I struggle to believe, perhaps, is that through Jesus Christ, we have such hope. Dignity and freedom, not freedom from all suffering in this life or discipline in this life but freedom to live in the knowledge that God will clothe us with beauty, 
as his people. That through Christ we too will come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, as our many, many, many month study of Hebrews has taught us. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. You were sold for nothing, the Lord says in verse 3. That is, sold to Egypt and Assyria at different times in the past, as verse 4 explains. Verse 5, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Continually all the day my name is despised. It's enough. The Lord's own name is at stake. Therefore, my people shall know my name, he says in verse 6. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. And when God shows up for his people, what does it look like? Well, he sends messengers into the world to awaken his people's faith. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Peace, happiness, salvation, your God reigns. That's how Isaiah sums it all up. As one author puts it, the message isn't that we somehow make God victorious, but that his grace has already won the victory over everything that oppresses us. So we must not surrender. The message is not that God loves us, but that he loves us with a love that cannot be defeated. There is power in this gospel. For us today, of course, it is the good news of the reign of God, now exercised by the man Jesus. The resurrected and ascended suffering servant, we'll talk about next week, who will come again in great power. This is a gospel that brings hope and joy in any circumstance, not a fake superficial happiness that ignores reality around us, but the deep-seated happiness of eternal security, of the deep confidence that knows God reigns and that God will make all things new, the confidence that in the end the promises will be reality, the comfort of God awaits us. Isaiah envisions this lone messenger running to the city of God with the good news, but then that messenger is welcomed by the watchman on the city wall. The city bursts into song. Nations are drawn into the spreading circle of joy as far as the ends of the earth. Something rather bigger than even Isaiah could imagine is in view here. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. They are really waste places at this point. For the Lord has comforted his people. How? 
Well, in that he's promised to bring this about. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It remains our hope today. Of course, it means that the people will therefore one day depart from Babylon. And when they do, it will be the Lord who will go with them. Verse 11 says, depart, depart, go out from there. Go out from the midst of her, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Dear friends, I don't know what sufferings or trials you may be facing now, or what sufferings or trials you may have to face or I may have to face in the coming days of our lives. I do not know how the discipline of God may be operating in your life. I do not know how the circumstances of your job or your family or your living situation or your relationships or your financial distress or your own heart's sinfulness may be weighing you down this afternoon, maybe especially in this Advent and Christmas season, as is often the case. I don't know those things. But I do know this, that our comfort can only come from the Lord who makes us part of his people. And therefore, part of those who have received the promise. And sometimes you and I feel like telling God to wake up. That's not wrong to do, but it's good to see that the Word of God also says, wake yourself, wake yourself. You who are afflicted and who are captive, awake, awake, there's good news to be heard. Your God reigns. We know he reigns in the person of Jesus Christ. Born a man to die and be raised and ascend to the heavenly throne, wherefrom he shall come again. And that knowledge changes everything. There is a, a classic Advent hymn that I'd wager to guess you've never heard of, that is in part based on this Isaiah passage that we've looked at today. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. It's called, Wake, Awake, for Night is Flying. The year it was written was 1597 in northern Germany, where there had been a horrific recurrence of the plague. And it was in the town of... Um, Una in Westphalia, where a Lutheran pastor named Philip Nikolai uh, watched as more than 1,300 people in his parish died in the latter half of just that year, 170 of them in one week alone. So to comfort his parishioners, Nikolai wrote a series of meditations to which he then appended two hymns, which he also wrote. <laughs> and one of those hymns is, Wake, awake, for
or night is flying. And I would have us sing it, but it's not that well known these days, and the tune is actually kind of complicated. So I'm going to simply read the stanzas in, in, instead in English translation, not sing them for you, just read them. Wake, awake, for night is flying. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying, Awake, Jerusalem, arise. Midnight hears the welcome voices, and at the thrilling cry rejoices. He comes, O church, lift up thine eyes. Rise up. With willing feet go forth the bridegroom meet. Hallelujah. Lo, great and small we answer all. We follow where thy voice shall call. Zion hears the watchman singing. Her heart with deep delight is springing. She wakes, she rises from her gloom. For her Lord comes down, all glorious. In grace arrayed by truth victorious. Her star is risen, her light is come. Ah, come thou blessed one. God's own beloved Son, hallelujah. We haste along an eager throng and gladly join the Advent song. Now let all the heavens adore thee and sing in fullest voice before thee with harp and cymbals clearest tone of one pearl each shining portal where we shall join the choirs immortal in praises round thy glorious throne. No vision ever brought, no ear hath ever caught such great glory. Therefore will we eternally sing hymns of joy and praise to thee. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.